This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we talk about socialist politics, DSA, the Democratic Party, and the Bernie Sanders candidacy with two DSA activists. And we then look at The Priced Out Generation, the name of the new book with Randy Shaw, its author. We begin our conversation with DSAers Jeremy Gong and Magali Miranda Alcazar about the larger issues that they are confronting after two years of Trump, a midterm election that saw radical Democratic socialists elected to Congress, and the beginning of a second Bernie Sanders campaign for president. We ask how they see the challenges ahead in a more favorable national context for Democratic socialists, thanks to Bernie AOC, Red for Ed striking teachers, and the Trump administration's retrograde policies. Can the left take over the Democratic Party, and should that be their aim? Or should the social movement work of DSA, independent of the Democrats, be their focus? And how do they define socialism? And what should socialists do, given the structures of our politics and economy? And then in the second segment, we talk to Randy Shaw, author of Generation Priced Out, which is a call to action that addresses the national crisis of housing city by city, looking at how policy and neglect, as well as economic crisis, has led to skyrocketing rents and home values that have priced out the working and middle class of urban America, such that young people today join the exodus from the city or face homelessness because they cannot afford to live in our cities. Randy Shaw's Generation Priced Out not only tells the stories of those impacted by the national housing crisis in more than a dozen cities, he makes the argument that cities can and must address the housing needs of residents of all income levels. Shaw offers specific strategies honed from his own decades of experience as a housing activist to reverse rising economic and racial inequality. And we'll hear them when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And we're going to be talking about some political issues of great import, and especially around what radicals are going to do in the next election and in the period leading up to it. And it's really all about socialists. Starting in 2016, DSA, or the Democratic Socialists, exploded in size, growing exponentially, literally, to more than 50,000 members today, and it's still growing rapidly. A small but very significant group of Democratic Socialists have been elected to Congress, led by, as we all know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and it is exerting an outsized influence on the Democratic Party, on Congress, and literally on the political conversation in the country with its policies of the Green New Deal, which will get to be voted on, apparently, Medicare for all, free college education at state universities, and so much more. We can thank Bernie Sanders and his candidacy in 2016 for a lot of that. He, of course, is an open democratic socialist. He's the most popular politician in the United States, and he's now launched a credible campaign for the Democratic Party nomination for president in 2020. DSA has organized large numbers of its members in both Los Angeles and Oakland, the Bay Area, to support recent teacher strikes, and it's also organized support for migrants at the border. It's opposed Trump's horrors there. It's intervening locally on key issues, including gentrification, of which we will hear more, controlling rents and defending the homeless. But the fact that DSA has established itself means it now has to confront a series of political issues 
of the kind of sort of organization it wants to be. And that's what we're going to be talking about with Jeremy Gong and Magali Miranda Alcazar. Jeremy Gong is he's on the National Political Committee of DSA, as well as the steering committee of the DSA East Bay chapter. We're speaking to him in the East Bay. He's a founding member of the Spring Caucus and a contributing editor for its publication, The Call. And MAGA, or Magali Miranda Alcazar, is a member of the DSA Los Angeles chapter, as well as being on the editorial collective of Viewpoint magazine. And she's also a graduate student in Chicano Studies at UCLA, studying labor and social reproduction. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Um, Well, let's get started. So the dynamic Bernie Sanders campaign of 2016, as well as the victory of Donald Trump in the same year, is what literally was the catalyst that allowed for the recruiting of tens of thousands of people, mostly young, into DSA in the last two years. But now, as we have Sanders running again, the question is, what has DSA done about the candidates so far? And what do you think their position toward Sanders should be? These are the burning questions. So who wants to start? I can start just, uh, so this is Jeremy. We have initiated an endorsement process considering the question of whether or not DSA should endorse Bernie Sanders. So the quick answer to your question is not very much. We haven't started campaigning for him, although certain chapters, I'm sure, are doing their own activities. But as a national organization, we haven't yet. Right now, members are participating in an online advisory poll on whether or not they think DSA should endorse Sanders. And soon this month, we're going to have a national political committee meeting to decide whether or not we will vote on whether or not to endorse Sanders. After that, we will launch, if we do endorse Sanders, we will launch a campaign in support of him will probably be quite an experiment. We we have not done anything like that, and I cannot tell you ahead of time exactly what that's going to look like. I will say that I do think DSA, obviously I support the idea that DSA would endorse Bernie Sanders, so I hope that we do go through with endorsing him, and I think it will be a transformative experience, not just for building DSA, but for introducing a serious and viable left radical political poll into this country. Okay, Maga, I know you have a different position, and I just want to preface it first by saying that I think listeners are going to be surprised, perhaps, that there's even any discussion about this. So let's hear what you think. Hi, yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, I should preface this by saying that uh, I, I voted in the advisory straw poll that Jeremy was referring to, and I, I've actually voted yes, but it's a sort of yes with reservations about endorsing Sanders. I, I think that I know a lot of members are voting no in as a sort of protest vote, people that I've talked to, not because they're not going to sort of jump on board and support the campaign if, if that's what DSA decides, but because they want to be having sort of public critical discussions that I think I also share the concern that some of the kind of critical discussions are not taking place, even though I, I voted yes. So my yes is a critical yes. In particular, I'm, I'm interested in having, you know, if this the yes endorsement goes forward, which I think it will, and I, I hope it will, that we can have a kind of public discussion within the DSA about the mixed results of the kind of original New Deal and the sort of Democratic Party realignment and the sort of mixed results that it had for the the working class and for socialism in the U.S. In particular, I'm coming at this sort of speaking as an individual. In my own research on domestic work, I think that, you know, we might talk about, yes, the original New Deal and the kind of strategic alliance of the Democratic Party helped facilitate the, the creation of the CIO. 
which, you know, is great for people who are who support unions, but it also had really catastrophic results for dem- domestic workers and agricultural workers in the South, many of whom were formerly enslaved people, um, women of color. And that was a result of kind of the, the labor movement uncritically real- aligning itself with the Democratic Party and with racist white Southerners. So there's a lot for me uh, that needs to be sort of discussed going forward, even though, like I said, I'm, I'm a critical support of yes. And in part because I think that what distinguishes me as a yes from the no voters in, in particular is that all the reasons that everyone sort of has been discussing already that we know Bernie Sanders platform at this point and we know, you know, we can get behind Medicare for all. That's amazing. Free public higher education. That's amazing. And, and I think 2020 is particularly exciting in a different way than 2016 was because there's this Green New Deal and kind of environmental crisis on the table. Okay, um, let me let me just stop you for a second. Yeah. Okay, so you've raised a lot of issues, MAGA, and they're all issues that I think we need to go in a little bit more deeply. So let me just say, first of all, because you've both talked about what think the Sanders campaign represents and how you should relate to it. But I think we need to do a little bit more. So Sanders' success, as well as the equally shocking, let's say, success of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a small number of other radicals in getting elected to Congress, poses the issues that you put in stark relief, MAGA, and that you hinted to at Jeremy. And that poses the broader question of the relationship of the Democratic Socialists of America to the Democratic Party. That's still the very big question. I want to get what you think that relationship should be. And I think that that probably fits into what both of you are saying about whether or not you should endorse Bernie Sanders. Let me just qualify that a little bit. First, there's a practical consideration. If you decide to support Bernie Sanders, does it mean that DSA will use its resources to run a field campaign, the ground operation? And how do you see that as different from what unions do, who also face internal discussion about whether or not they should use their money to organize or to support Democrats? And then that begs the question, sorry to be you know introducing all of this, but what the strategy is. And here, putting together sort of two questions on this, but DSAers, some of them want to run in the Democratic primaries as socialists or DSAers in order to build a force that is essentially opposed to the Democratic Party's leadership. And is that possible? We've seen radical candidates supported by DSA who've won. They're set on taking over the Democratic Party. So there you see the difference of those who want to fight it from within, maybe, and those who want to fight it from without. We all used to call that the inside-outside sort of strategy. Is that going to happen? I mean, this question will come up. So when framing your answer, I'd like you to you know sort of consider that as well as what you just said, Maga, about the history. So let's start with Jeremy. Sure. So first of all, I think what Maga said was was absolutely correct with regard to the pitfalls of the New Deal in terms, I mean, the, the way that I would put it is that the basically the segregationist element of the Democratic Party with which FDR had to work forced into the New Deal 
exemptions to agriculture and domestic labor, for example, which were largely people of color in the South, black workers in the South, that were exempted from the labor reforms that protected workers in the North, for example. Um, And this baked in segregation into the Democratic Party coalition and into the New Deal that divided the working class. And I think, as as you you very accurately pointed out, undermined the labor movement going forward. And actually, um, just this week, incidentally, we published an article, me and a few other members of DSA on the Green New Deal and how we can learn lessons from the original New Deal. And one of them is that, that we should not divide the working class, but instead we have to unite the working class and have a truly universal program for just social transformation and a Green New Deal. In addition to that, the only way that's going to be possible, and this gets to your next question, Susie, is if we build a mass movement from below, that we do not rely on the leadership of the Democratic Party or the leadership of the trade union bureaucracy, to lead us towards a Green New Deal, towards a just transition, or towards a social society. But instead, that we build a movement from below that looks much more like the mass strikes we've seen in Los Angeles, Oakland, and West Virginia, which challenged both the trading bureaucracies and the Democratic Party, and undermined people's faith in them to a large degree, and convinced people that the way that they're going to transform society, win a better education system, and in my opinion, that's the route towards winning a climate for everyone and a health care for everyone, is through mass action and mass struggle from below. That will force the Democratic Party to adjust, and hopefully they will start to put forward progressive reforms. But to me, my interest, and this is very different from saying that I think DSA agrees with me, I think DSA is very mixed and is going to continue to have a mixed strategy because it's not a completely centralized organization. But my suggestion of what socialists should be doing is not taking over the Democratic Party in the way that I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez intends to, to some degree, but instead to force politics to change this country through mass struggle from below. That includes, in my opinion, corporate-free class struggle campaigns, electoral campaigns, like we've seen Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders do. And what that allows us to do is to create viable political alternatives. Before, I think, 2016, people thought there were two choices, the Republican version of neoliberalism and the Democratic Party version of neoliberalism. And thanks to Bernie Sanders, we've been able to see that there's an alternative that's inspiring to people. So I think that opens the space to work outside and ultimately break from the Democratic Party and build a true workers' party that we haven't seen yet in this country. Maga, so there you go. What do you think? You know, I'm honestly very surprised to hear that. I, I'm absolutely in agreement. But the reason why I'm, I'm a bit surprised is because I think that there are folks involved in the kind of call camps that have called for a slightly different position than that. So I, I, I understand that there are, you know, multiple tendencies and things within the organization, which is what's, fat, what's great about it. It's a broad tent. But, you know, I, I was pretty concerned by a recent Jacobin article by Megan Day that was sort of discussing a Bernie Sanders presidency in sort of like terms of like an imperial presidency. Like, what can he do with his executive power and, and kind of thinking about his popular mandate, which to me was a little bit alarming for me, the bread and butter of socialist politics for as long as I've been around, which is, you know, I'm young, but been around for 10 years has been this kind of grassroots self-activity, you know, elevating the self-activity of the class and of um, trying to create socialist organization, which, on the other hand, are are not the same thing. So it's really heartening. I I think the only thing I would add is that we should be absolutely preparing for that scenario where if Bernie Sanders moves forward in this election to the general election, we have to be prepared in DSA to understand that he's going to have to move right both because of pressures of the establishment, the Democratic Party establishment, because of donors, and because of pressure to win moderate votes. In that instance, it's, it's more important than ever to have this kind of, you know, what Jeremy's described as the kind of, I think, accurately as a principled sort of independent movement. And, you know, if he loses, I, I think that we 
still focusing on, on building that principled movement from below allows us to kind of keep building and, and stronger. And I should add one, one thing that, you know, we, we're also ta- we're talking about the boom in membership of the DSA as having come largely from the Bernie Sanders election, but I actually didn't join around the Bernie Sanders election. I joined in the kind of second big boom of people that, you know, there was a big wave of people that joined after Trump was elected. So for me, the Bernie Sanders campaign, I, and I know for me and, and other members of the DSA, the kind of Bernie Sanders campaign was, was secondary. And the primary thing was building kind of what, what might be called like defensive kind of institutions from below to kind of be able to fight the right. I want to come in there, Maga, and that is, you know, first to just say this is a pleasure to have this kind of a conversation, because it means that DSA has grown into almost a mass organization, one that counts enough for us to devote radio time to it, and is part of a national conversation now because of Bernie Sanders and because of the election of Trump. You're right to say that. But, you know, even with the election of Trump, you have before it a candidate who has come out and essentially what's taken the bloodshed away from the concept of socialism. It shows that we're past the Cold War now, a generation past the Cold War, and the old kind of red baiting doesn't work. And then the other side of it is that neoliberalism of the Democrats and the Republicans, as you said, Jeremy, means that people are really looking for alternatives. And that's that's kind of, we haven't seen that since uh, the 30s and a little bit in the 60s. So that, I just want to say that as a preface. And now it comes back to questions, though, that we've had some historical experience of, and that's literally the relationship to the electoral system. And we have, you know, we have a winner-take-all rigged political system. So that's why we're talking about the Democratic Party at all. We don't have a Labor Party, a Workers' Party, or a Socialist Party. And the Democrats have kind of been part of that coalition that considers itself all of the above, just in terms of lip service mainly. So the ability of radicals in the U.S. electoral context to make gains ends up posing the question not just of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, and Sanders, but of DSA and the Democratic Party. And so it really raises, as you both have, the kind of importance of electoral work and non-electoral work. And so activity within the unions and labor movement, as I mentioned earlier, actively and broadly speaking, and the struggle against things that DSA has been involved in, that you have been involved in, evictions, homelessness, rent gouging, Prop 10, immigrants, all of those other issues. So what do you think should be the relative weight of electoral work and movement work in democratic socialists? And think of that in terms of the election approaching. I'll keep my comment brief. I, I was involved in part of the DSALA and independently in canvassing for months around Proposition 10 in California to increase rent control. And I just want to say that that's the kind of work that I'm most excited about and that I I saw kind of organizing that the members of my chapter are most excited about. We had internal convention where we democratically voted on chapter priorities. And overwhelmingly, I think our chapter was really excited about Proposition 10. So like I said, I think that what's most exciting about the kind of Bernie Sanders campaign to me is not whether we win. I want, I should be really clear that I, I'm not I'm not kind of a pessimist. I, I want to be optimistic that he might win and that we're not just sort of like Sisyphus or whatever, like pretending, being cynical about it before it happens. But what's most exciting, like I said, is the way that people become familiar with his platform 
of, you know, democratic socialism, Medicare for all, public higher ed, climate crisis, like I said, is super exciting. I'm a teacher at UCLA, now a TA, and I, I talk to all my students and they're super concerned about the Green New Deal. And, and if Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can be a gateway or a vehicle for us to talk to the students and get them organized, yeah. For me, that's what I'm most excited about going into 2020. Okay, Jeremy, I'd like to hear that too, and even maybe even a little bit more uh, deeply about the relationship that you see between, say, Sanders and DSA and these radical Democrats who are now in the Congress. Sure. Well, to the question of the proportion of electoral work versus, let's say, social movement work, which I think is a you know crucial question, maybe the crucial question for us going forward, probably for many movements in the past, I think... My the case I would like to make to DSA members and to the left broadly is that we should not think of these as being so opposed to one another. I think this can be demonstrated both in the way that uh, Maga just said in terms of Sanders and, and Ocasio-Cortez being vehicles to get the message out that otherwise wouldn't have happened. I mean, you know, while the three of us on this call have might have a lot of good ideas, we don't get to go on CNN every day. And people aren't talking about the things that we say and write and tweet every day on, on the mainstream news and in the New York Times. So they have a platform that we don't have, and they happen to have very similar ideas to us. And that is, in a, by itself is absolutely incredible. However, that's not to say that any electoral effort, any elected politician is good. I think Eric Blanc just came out with an article comparing the last socialist congressperson from New York, Meyer London, to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And he said there were three principles for socialists in Congress. He said, first of all, they have to emphasize class struggle of workers against bosses. Two, they have to promote socialism unequivocally. And three, they have to stand up to the Democratic Party. And I would add a fourth thing, and I think this is something that Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez have actually not done a great job at, and of course they haven't done necessarily a great job at all those things either, but they've done somewhat of a good job on these, which is to build organizations from below, like Maga was talking about. And I think that these are all possible through the offices of Congress or through the president. And I, I haven't actually read Megan's article that you referenced before, but I think Bernie Sanders already as a senator has done an incredible job, for example, with his Stop Bezos Act. He used his platform and his great social media presence to literally force one of the richest people or the richest person in the world to increase the wages of hundreds of thousands of his employees. And similarly, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez chimed in in the fight against Amazon HQ2 in New York. And New York City DSA activists claimed that had they not and other people not participated in Queen's electoral efforts, including regarding Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it would have been much harder for them to mobilize, educate, and, and uh, stop the HQ2 Amazon deal, which would, of course, had worsened gentrification in the area. So to me, I think these things are all intertwined. I know here in the, in the Bay Area, in East Bay Area, we campaigned for Proposition 10 and for Javanka Beckles, who is a democratic socialist, a strong advocate of our politics, going up against a Clintonite who had millions of dollars from charter school interests, real estate interests, etc., whose name is Buffy Wicks. And we lost that campaign. Uh, it was a close race, but we did get 90,000 people to vote for Javanka Beckles. However, after that, we had an enormous amount of infrastructure and relationships that we then leveraged to fight on behalf of the Oakland teachers and their strike that they just concluded. So in my opinion, building independent worker-led infrastructure can happen in many ways. The important part is that it be independent of the Democrats and that it be focused on class struggle. And I think there's ways that you can synthesize elections and non-electoral work. Don't make it seem like these are at odds with one another. I want to raise just finally the issue about the S in DSA. Socialism, you both talked about it in a way in terms of electoral work and about the programs that are being put forward by Sanders and the radicals, which are radical social democratic reforms, but reforms that push up against the system, but some see as realizable in the system. How you see the tension between reform and maybe socialism as an end goal? Maga, do you want to go first? Oh, you hit me with a curveball. 
Yeah, I think this is another question that we're going to have to kind of have a, an open public sort of conversation about. I think that for me, one of the biggest mistakes that that we might make in the Sanders election is to sort of maybe think, compare him to Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. I think I, I've heard that comparison. And and I think that we need to be really, really clear about what's different about Sanders versus Corbyn. I think you mentioned some of this earlier, Susie, but there isn't a kind of tradition of a Labour Party or openly socialist party. Labour unions are in decline. And unlike in the Corbyn election, not that Corbyn to me is like the kind of ultimate savior, but even, you know, when we're talking about reform and socialism, I think that's still like a ways ahead of where we are, you know, where, where he's got the leadership that he's got is um, in part because he's got it because of the labor unions, and that in the absence of that, a Sanders election should really raise a lot of questions about how we as DSA kind of relate. We want to be optimistic and say that Sanders will be accountable or or Alexander Ocasio-Cortez will be accountable. Jeremy, can you address that question? Yes, I can. I mean, to me, what I see, I totally agree with you and I agree with Maga, you know, the reforms that Sanders is proposing are not revolutionary socialist reforms. And, and I myself would like to see us eventually have a socialist revolution in a democratic socialist society. But in America in 2019, and especially in 2015, when he first announced his first presidential campaign, there was no more radical that you could be and still be viable. I think he did an excellent job, better than anyone else alive, at bringing socialist ideas to a mass audience. Of course, it's confusing. Are they New Deal, liberal, or social democratic reforms? But the principles are the same. He blames billionaires for everyday people's problems. He encourages them to take part in politics in a way that no one else really has or does. And he says we need to redistribute the wealth and have a society for us, the, the many, and not the few in the same way that Corbyn does. So it's a good start for millions of people to start to orient towards our politics. And I think it creates favorable terrain for more radical socialist politics like what DSA wants to advance. Uh, Apologies on my end for introducing large questions and little time to answer them. Maga Miranda is a member of DSA LA as well as the editorial collective of Viewpoint Magazine and is a grad student at UCLA. Jeremy Gong is on the National Political Committee of DSA as well as on the steering committee of the East Bay chapter and a founding member of the Spring Caucus and is a contributing editor for its publication called The Call. Thanks so much for being with us today. We've just begun this conversation, and I hope we can take it up at another date. Thank you so much for having This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and very pleased to have Randy Shaw with us. He's a longtime housing activist and director of San Francisco's Tenderloin Housing Clinic, which is the city's largest provider of housing for homeless single adults. And I'm going to come back to who Randy is, but let's just talk about what we're going to talk about. It's impossible in Los Angeles today and most other cities in the United States not to see the explosion of homelessness. Every neighborhood has streets and underpasses loaded with with tents. I've seen people trying desperately to keep their spaces clean at Christmas time. Some of the homeless tents had Christmas trees out front. It's a remarkable difference from what homelessness used to be and what it is today. It's been a feature of Los Angeles for decades, but as I just said, Now it has exploded. And whereas before you often saw the most marginal 
and traditionally left out segments of the society. Today, they are joined by working families who can no longer afford the existing housing. New zoning laws allow multiple dwellings, so many boomers who themselves face inadequate retirement but who are lucky enough to be in houses, and if they can, they can tap the mortgage and convert their garages into rentals. But this is only scratching the surface of need and affordability. There's still race and class segregation, and housing, a basic human need, is one, if not the face, of the grotesque inequality of capitalism in the 21st century. So Randy Shaw, who I started, is joining us today. He edits the highly recommended website Beyond Cron, that's www.beyondcron.org. It's the voice of the rest. It's literally the journalism we don't get much of these days. He's written many books, including The Activist Handbook and Beyond the Field, Cesar Chavez, the UFW and the Struggle for Justice in the 21st Century, among others. But what we're going to talk about today is his brand new book called Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America? And it's out by UC Press. And it's literally a call to action that addresses the national crisis of housing city by city, looking at how policy and neglect as well as economic crisis has led to skyrocketing rents and home values that have literally priced the working and middle class of urban America out, such that young people today join the exodus from the city or go into homelessness themselves because they cannot afford to live in our cities. And I know I'm going on too long, but there's also been in the last few days an article in the L.A. Times that highlighted college student homelessness. So Randy, as I mentioned, is a long-term housing advocate. And this book, Generation Price Out, not only tells the stories of those who were impacted by the national housing crisis in more than a dozen cities, he makes the argument that cities can and must address the housing needs of residents of all income levels and challenges them to reverse the rising economic and racial inequality. But more than that, he offers specific strategies to do it, honed from his own decades of experience as a housing activist. So, Randy, with all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Well, you summarize it very, very well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So let's just get to it. How did we get to where we are today, which is literally as a, a decade after the housing bubble collapsed that led to the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression? And I know there's many factors, but can you give an overview of the kind of policy city by city that exacerbated inequality, well, the shorting of housing and unaffordability? Yeah, the basic problem is, is, you know, L.A., for example, added a million people since 1970, but nowhere near the housing units. So when you continue to add population and jobs and you don't build housing, and then you have many neighborhoods that don't let you build apartments, which is true in Los Angeles and all, almost all the cities I write about in the book, and when you don't have strong tenant protections, which L.A. has not really had, uh, it's getting stronger, but not what we've had in San Francisco, for example. Right. So you lose the, the people, the existing tenants get displaced, you put that all together and you have a terrible housing crisis. We also have, by the way, um, you know, just in L.A., as you mentioned, a mayor who um, has made housing affordability a priority. But then, you know, we've seen lots of different forces come in and, and he recently allowed the evacuation and destruction of the belongings of the homeless. City Hall has a rat infestation and typhus, which has swept homeless encampments. And so it also begs the question, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that while it takes time maybe to build Build housing, 
Some argue that it doesn't take as long as it's taken. Why can't a housing advocate mayor provide toilets and showers as well as housing instead of punishing the homeless and making their lives worse? Well, you're making a point that I make in my book about that. You know, I quote yeah. a lot of people about Mayor Garcetti because he talks a great game, and he did endorse Prop 10 on the the mm-hmm. Hawkins repeal, and, the, and he's taken some some strong positions verbally. But all the people, and I, I say this in Generation Priced Out, that right. when actual activists feel he doesn't really walk the walk, walk the talk, and yeah. he's doing a little better. But one of the problems in, in L.A. is when you need strong mayoral leadership could make a big difference. And he hasn't exhibited it on tenant stuff to the extent he should or on homelessness. He's gotten better in forcing some of these uh, recalcitrant council members to allow shelters in their district. But he has not lived up to what many thought he could do. We all thought because he's running, maybe running for president, he wanted to be cautious. Now he has no excuse. Right. You know, L.A. has the worst housing and homelessness problem in the United States, and he needs to get on it a little more aggressively. The rezoning of Skid Row, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to be too wonky here, but... I'd like I you to be wonky. Go right ahead. What I, what I argue in Generation Price Dow, it's really important for listeners to understand, is that, yes, for very poor people, you need federal subsidies, and it's not L.A.'s fault or San Francisco's fault that they can't house people when, when, they, when the federal government has pulled the rug out from affordable housing. But on the other hand, there's things you can do. And this mayor, and what we, what we see is mayors, you know, he hasn't been aggressive on, on, on zoning. So therefore, if you can't build affordable housing in half of Los Angeles, it's very difficult to meet the demand, right? And on Skid Row, where it's the homeless center of L.A., there's alternative plans to rezone Skid Row that to gentrify it and displace and just make things worse. And where are those people going to go? Instead of building, Skid Row needs to be like my tenderloin, which is a, a, a nonprofit dominated low income enclave right. with market rate housing as well, but certainly not eliminating the low income character because that's where the people are living. And Skid Row is one of the few remaining neighborhoods. And is this something that when you were doing the research for the book, and in fact, your own activism as a housing advocate, did you talk to people in L.A. who were precisely trying to do this? I have a a section in Generation Priced Out on both Highland Park and and Boyle Heights. And Boyle Heights interested me a lot because I think Boyle Heights is still a winnable fight. And, you know, I do discuss in the book how the L.A. Times criticizes groups like Defend Boyle Heights for being too aggressive and being too militant. And the point I argue is that you better be aggressive and militant because they're about to displace your entire community. Mm. And if the activists were not militant and, and, and all, I don't know why tenants would want to work with them because they weren't really aggressively pursuing their interests. So there's a lot of pressure on housing issues, unlike other issues where people feel you shouldn't use what they call extreme tactics. But the reality is militancy is working in L.A. And if you're going to preserve Boyle Heights, and preserve Skid Row, that's what it's going to take. And that's what I argue in the book. And I think I show in city after city, the passive play-by-the-rules approach doesn't work. I'm so glad that you said that, Randy Shaw. Most people here know well both of those examples. Highland Park has always been a working-class neighborhood, a mixed neighborhood, uh, heavily Latino, but now it's being gentrified. And the people who are moving to Highland Park don't want to necessarily be the gentrifiers, but they, too, are looking for places to live. That is the whole point. And I think one of the things that about Generation Price Out that differs from other books on gentrification is that Highland Park shows that you can completely gentrify a neighborhood, not by a big developer coming in and tearing down stuff or building luxury condos, but if you don't build anything, 
then people are then who wouldn't choose to live first at Highland Park. They're priced out of other areas. They say, hey, gee, we have these nice craftsmen home in Highland Park. Let's live here. So you can have a total gentrification of a neighborhood without any construction. <laughs> Just wealthier people. So that's where I sometimes differ with the people on development, because I see that building housing is important. L.A. doesn't have an inclusionary law, which means when developers build in San Francisco, for example, 20% of the units have to be affordable. That's not true in Los Angeles. You have a linkage fee, but not a mandatory inclusionary. So what you want to do is say, if we had built housing in other parts of L.A., those people who've now taken over Highland Park wouldn't have come. Right, And there wouldn't have been the, the, the gentrification. So adding supply needs to deal the market demand. Otherwise, they finish Highland Park, they start looking at Boyle Heights. I wanted to go you know, deeper into this, uh, Randy Shaw, but you mentioned Prop 10, and we just went through that battle. There were an, an awful lot of effort to get Prop 10 passed. And as you mentioned, Mayor Garcetti supported it. Rent activists all over the state did. Uh, I have a lot of friends who were active and phone banked on this and canvassed on this. What happened? And can you just let the listeners well, in a brief... I, I've been involved in rent control stuff since the 70s, and I remember the whole battle around Costa Hawkins. And, mm-hmm. and it's a simple answer why Prop Prop 10 lost so handily was because most voters didn't know what Costa Hawkins was. Yeah. It's hard to repeal a law that no one knows what the law does. And then they spent the entire campaign, the no side, scaring homeowners about their property values. And I think if my opinion had been asked, I would not have repealed Costa Hawkins in its entirety. I just would have repealed the vacancy control provision because really what Costa Hawkins was always about was not letting cities put rent restrictions on vacant apartments. And that's what's really caused housing prices to soar. And I understand those who say, yes, but there's other problems, the single-family home exemption, the new construction exemption, but it's very difficult against well-powered people spending $70 million to win a campaign like that, especially Mm -hmm. when most of the voters aren't directly affected by rent control. So I hope if there's another measure, it just comes back and deals with the vacancy control, just allow localities to enact vacancy control, and that would do more to affect housing prices for renters in California than anything that can be done. Okay, so let's move to your area, the Bay Area. You highlighted in the book, in the introduction, and in other places, the way that the 2016 Oakland ghost ship fire, where 36 people died in what was a ramshackle bohemian and artist live and workspace, how that exemplified the crisis for working and middle class residents of Oakland who were priced out of, uh, you know, being able to live elsewhere and live on their own. Detroit, on the other hand, years ago, famous tried to court artists and musicians to Detroit because they had affordable housing, affordable in part because the population shrunk. But apart from the housing, there were no jobs or desirable schools to make the move realistic. In Oakland, we just saw over the last week, the housing crisis was again a key factor in the teacher strike as teachers' salaries are woefully inadequate to allow them to live in the city where they teach. Do you see both of these examples the fire, the unaffordable housing, the strikes, and then the inability of a city like Detroit to attract bohemians and artists, two different kinds of wake-up calls about where, where this crisis coincides? Well, you know, I, I, as I say, I wrote this book, Generation Priced Out, after the Oakland fire because yeah. I was so shocked. Oakland has always been the affordable alternative to San Francisco. It's been, for, for decades now, people haven't been able to afford to live in San Francisco, say, but they could always live in Oakland, and now people can't even afford to live in Oakland. And yeah. Oakland rents going up at a higher percentage rate than San Francisco. This is what led me to say, when you're having people displaced from Highland Park, areas that were seen as immune from gentrification, 
and then it happens. Yeah. It says that no part of any major city or no part of a major economic area is safe. Detroit and Cleveland and those areas, you know, have a hard time because they don't have any local job creation. So bohemians can go there, but <laughs> yeah. it's hard to get earn a living. Right. But, you know, that's why I'm now I'm going to be meeting with groups in Richmond, California, which is just outside Oakland, because Richmond still has the potential to be maintained affordable. But, you know, that's why I wrote this book, so to give guidance to cities like Richmond. And here's what you need to do. There's strategies that work, and let's implement them. It's not the government. You don't have to wait for the federal government. Cities can do it right now. Right. Well, I want to get to those, you know, your proposals, more or less after we go through a few more examples. Uh, Randy Shaw, I'm speaking with Randy Shaw, and his new book is called Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America? It's University of California Press. It's very well written. It's a great read. It's compelling. And, you know, as we've sort of indicated, you already know it because you're living it if you're living in a city in California or literally anywhere in this country, any urban area. And so I kind I kind of wanted to say just before we go to your policy prescriptions that these problems aren't limited to the United States, but we have in the U.S. This, the, the worst safety net and the least protection for the working class. And we see, you know, where a lot of these crises converge, as we see with climate change and fires and creating more homelessness and all of those issues. But I would like to hear your view on what cities do around the world to protect housing in neighborhoods. Well, Is it I just rent control? Since, well, I will say since writing the book that I learned that Toronto has – and Van, Van, I knew about Vancouver, but I knew Toronto has a lot of the same problems that we have in our cities uh, with, with the housing problem. But I'll tell you that – what the big difference between Europe and the rest of the world, the industrial world, and the United States is we got out of the public housing business in the 1970s and never returned. So, when other, it's the cheapest and most effective way to house low-income people is through public housing, which people now call systems called social housing. And we got out of the business under Richard Nixon in the mid-1970s, often for racial reasons, because in cities like Los Angeles in the 60s, when your mayor, Sam Yorty, <laughs> some of your listeners may remember him, uh, he refused to accept federal uh, public housing developments because they had to be integrated. Mm. And so, you know, the racial bias against African Americans got cities not to support public housing. And eventually, you know, people who might remember the, the TV, it was a book and then a TV show called Show Me a Hero about Yonkers, New York. I remember that. They tried to build. Yeah. So even in these northern areas, even in these areas where the, quote, Democrats are running the cities, they didn't want public housing because it had to be integrated. And it meant if you allow public housing, African Americans or Latinos could live in your neighborhood. And the white homeowners didn't want that. And so public housing was killed almost, you know, 45 years ago. And then we wonder why we have a terrible homeless problem in this country. Well, there's obviously a connection. And there's, this is really interesting. I lived in Britain in the 70s, and there people aspired to have a council house, which was the same yeah. thing as public housing, and your rent was pegged to your income, not to and the market. A stigma that yeah. what, our, what our society did is we created stigma around public housing. And, right. And public housing was an example. People used to say, conservatives say it's, it's a liberal, pro it shows the failure of liberal policies. No, it actually, the liberals also, the progressives all said, don't build high-rise towers of poor people, do scattered site. They yeah. ignored all that. And they never gave public housing authorities the money they needed to keep the buildings. And they say, oh, it's a failed liberal plan. No, 
not true. I think there's another example of it too. After Katrina, where they demolished oh, yeah. uh, undestroyed, un, you know, damaged, beautiful housing stock of public housing where mostly African Americans lived, and it was seen as part of this sort of neoliberal privatization, well, take advantage of the situation. But I, I just I want you to say something about that. But also, do you think the tide has changed with the teacher strike, where people are now seeing that privatization isn't isn't necessarily something that we should want? I, I think it's changing in terms of education and charter schools. I, I think that, you know, if you look at public housing, for, for a lot of reasons, I think politically it's a heavy lift. We have a hard enough time getting nonprofits funded where there's no stigma. And I think that for residents, they just want affordable housing. They don't care who's running it, whether it's a government or whether it's a private nonprofit, you know, corporation. Uh, but we just have to build a lot more affordable housing in this in all the cities. And you know, we've been starved. And, and Bill Clinton, his main legacy was he, he had a Hope 6 program that destroyed 100,000 family units for affordable, uh, for public housing. I mean, so his reinvention of public housing was to destroy it. Right. And we got very little gains under Obama. So one of the things that I argue is we have to make sure in 2020, if a Democrat wins, we, that housing is on the front burner instead of the back burner. Excellent. Well, there's other things, too, that, that I want to talk about, because you did talk about, well, we talked about the lack of public housing. You're saying it's a big lift. We talked a little bit about rent control um, that still exists in pockets, but is always under attack, part of New York, part of Los Angeles, part of the Bay Area. But in your book, you also take aim, not just at gentrification, but at NIMBYism. And you give an example of even sort of progressive Venice, but other areas, and NIMBY means not in my backyard, so that Homeowners who are lucky enough to have a home and in some cases are, are quite wealthy just don't want shelters or mixed housing or affordable housing in their area. How do you see that problem? Well, you know, I do quote favorably Mike Davis's comment about the Sunset Bolsheviks, the people <laughs> living in the mansions north of Sunset, Bel Air, and those areas, Hillside, mm. who try to prevent apartments from being built. I think most of the people listening to this interview right now would probably be surprised to know that vast sections of Los Angeles, you cannot build an apartment building. Half of San Francisco, the tenant town, you can't build an apartment building. Much of the buildable land in Seattle, you can't build an apartment building. How do we solve a housing crisis when we let these homeowners say, we're not going to let renters in our neighborhood? And it's racist. It's, it was originally racist, the zoning laws, and it's continued to be racist because renters are seen as more likely to be non-white. So that's why I say this general generation divide, which I write about in the book, is because you have boomer homeowners who were able to buy houses when they were a lot cheaper, preventing multi-unit buildings in their neighborhood, which is what the current millennials can afford. They, if homes in all these neighborhoods, you know, in San Francisco, the average home goes for $1.6 million. Right. In and Berkeley, you can't get a house for under a million dollars. In Berkeley. Right. So prices are so out of whack, you need to build fourplexes, sixplexes, and larger buildings. But also the rent. Look at the, in your own city what the exactly. what the rent is. Isn't it like two thousand or more for a one bedroom? Oh no! You, 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 I'm sorry to say you couldn't get a, a one bedroom in San Francisco for under three thousand. It'd be very difficult. I stand corrected. Uh, yeah. <laughs> New York prices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and again, it's all because when you continue to add huge population and jobs and don't build housing. And, and what's interesting about all the cities I write about in Generation Priced Out, they're all very pro-immigrant right cities. I mean, no one is saying keep immigrants out of San Francisco or L.A., but immigrants are coming. Don't we have to provide a place for them to live? Right. They're it's changing the character of the cities. I'm sure you know that. I mean, you know, I write about people who passed up a chance to live in a garage near their downtown job, and, and they said they commute an hour 
and we have you know huge long commutes, which are the worst thing for climate change. I mean, the main cause of climate change in California is too much driving. So mm. not letting people live near their jobs is an economic and environmental disaster. Well, this is a perfect segue, uh, Randy Shaw, to the prescriptions that you provide at the end of your book. And this book, Generation Price Out, is more than a description. It's a call to action. And you end with these 10 steps that cities can take to preserve economic and racial diversity. Can you go over some of them or well, maybe all of them? Example, I mean, what we did in, in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco where I work, uh, the reason we've been prevented the only neighborhood to prevent gentrification is we just so much of the land is off the speculative market. L.A. should be prioritizing its affordable housing funding to Boyle Heights, so we make sure there's such a major amount of housing off the speculative market that there's no risk. But you've had a problem in L.A. with not enough nonprofit housing being built because the neighborhood groups have opposed it. So what you have to do is it has to be an aggressive building. And, you know, the ADUs are happening finally, which is, which is good. But you have to focus on trying to get diversity in economic diversity in neighborhoods through construction. And if you want that, you have to have an inclusionary housing law in Los Angeles so that when everything that's built, a percentage of units are automatically affordable so that teachers can live in those neighborhoods instead of being priced out. One thing I wanted to just ask you before you move to your next one, because you said it in the chapter on both Oakland and also San Francisco and L.A., is that how does Prop 13 affect affordable housing? Maybe that we heard a lot about how Prop 13 hurts public education in the last month, but how does it do housing? Well, the problem is that Prop 13 gives an economic incentive for counties to use their land for shopping centers because they get a, the sales tax go to them where the, the, they get less property tax revenue. So you have places like Roseville up near Sacramento and the League of Cities, which is very powerful in Sacramento. They love shopping centers, which, of course, are the worst thing for the environment in addition to n- taking land that could be used for housing. So Prop 13 has had you know so many devastating consequences. It also limits when you build housing – and the long-term homeowners are paying property taxes at 1970s and 80s rates. Right. How do we support the infrastructure of the city? Let's see what else you can go through in terms of your prescriptions. It really comes down to people often thinking, oh, it's too late, you know, and they're focused. It's already expensive, but if we act now, and this is the whole theme of Generation Priced Out, that we can, cities right now can pass laws and change policies that make things more affordable in the future and that expand opportunities for the working middle class. It's not something we have to wait for Donald Trump or a new president or a new governor. A lot can be done locally, and if people read the book, they'll see L.A. can do a lot more than it's doing, and we have to keep pressuring the elected officials in Los Angeles to do more because L.A.'s officials, their council, has not really stepped up to the extent it should. Randy Shaw, I want to thank you so much, and I want to just say that for the most part on this program, we've talked about you know the economic crisis and how the housing boom, you know, was so much a part of that, the housing bubble and crash. But I've never had someone actually say, okay, all of that is true, but here's some other factors and here's things that we can do about it. And I want to congratulate you for taking on that because it's it's not just the overall analysis, it's the actual tactics and strategies to change it. And I want to encourage uh, the listeners to go out and buy this book, Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America. We've sort of just scratched the surface of all the things that are in it, but I want to thank you so much, Randy, yeah, for people, writing it. You can follow me on Twitter at Beyond Cron, B-E-Y-O-N-D-C-H-R. So and they can also much. go and read 
Beyond Crime. Beyond Crime. I write about housing all the time and write a lot about California and L.A. Randy Shaw, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.